I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. In this episode of Diary of a CLO, I'm joined by Dr. Keith Keating, who has a rich and varied career in learning and talent development. Keith is currently a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania, one of the only universities in the world to offer a doctorate in learning leadership, and he is also the Chief Learning and Talent Officer at Archwell. Keith is currently pushing for greater change in the industry through his book, The Trusted Learning Advisor, and strongly believes that L&D should be thinking more strategically. Enjoy. Keith, hi, and welcome to Diary of a CLO. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's my pleasure to be here. Good stuff. Well, thank you for joining. And I suppose just to dig straight in, really, I'd love to know a little bit about you, really. So where are you now? What are you currently doing? And, and how did you get there, essentially? Uh, what's the time limit for today? <laughs> no time limit, but I might cut you off. <laughs> All right. So today I am a chief learning and talent officer for Archwell Holdings. It's a mortgage service company. We are located in the US, India, and Philippines, so a global organization. And we provide services, back-end services for mortgage companies in the US. Additionally, I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Chief Learning Officer Program, which is also where I graduated with my doctorate recently, so I'm really excited to be joining uh, my alma mater there. And then on top of that, I speak in the industry and just trying to help evolve our industry to the next phase, which we'll get into in a few minutes when we get to the, the book topic. So it's kind of a quick snapshot of today. The history of getting here um, started really by accident. When I was uh, much younger, I actually dropped out of high school. My parents told me that I would not amount to anything. My teachers told me I wouldn't amount to anything. I would just be destitute, uh, destined for life in fast food, which there's nothing wrong with working in fast food by far. And um, I believe them. And so I got a job in fast food. And about two years into it, I just kept feeling like there was something more I wanted to be doing. And I didn't know what it was necessarily. I think that's a feeling that a lot of people have right now with their careers and with the way technology is disrupting careers. But we'll circle back to that later. So I'm old enough to where you looked in the job for newspaper, uh, you looked in the newspaper for job ads, and there was a job ad to be a trainer, a Microsoft Office trainer for a company. And the job was to travel around teaching government offices, a Microsoft Office 2000. And so I went to the interview, I had no idea what I was doing, didn't have the skills for it necessarily. And I was so nervous that I coughed through the whole thing. And eventually she interrupted me and said, well, you sound really sick. You know, maybe we should have you stop talking. And I said, yes, thank you. You know, my throat's really bad. It wasn't, I was just nervous. <laughs> and a week later, they offered me the job. I don't know why. And so my job was, again, traveling around the country, teaching uh, Microsoft Office to Social Security Administration government um, personnel. And I was horrible. I was the worst trainer that ever existed. Didn't know what I was doing, didn't have any of the skill sets. It was just a bad experience for the learners and a bad experience for me. But I was tenacious and each day I practiced and I got 0.001% better. And the next day, 0.001% better. And so it started to add up. And eventually the light bulb went off once I realized that I could help people learn. 
And I saw that in their eyes that they were getting what I was trying to teach them. And so about a year later, I asked, you know, why did you hire me? And my manager said, well, you were the only one that showed up that had car insurance and no prior legal issues. <laughs> so that was how I started in the field of L&D. <laughs> I'll say they really took a chance on you there. <laughs> they took a big one. They took a big one, luckily and thankfully. Yeah. Something you just mentioned there around where you graduated from, from your CLO programs, that captured my attention because I think the role of CLO is still on this side of the pond in the UK, still relatively new. It's not uh, necessarily a role that many organizations have. And I was talking previously um, to one of the other podcast guests around um, training programs for L&D senior leadership and how there's a distinct lack. It feels like there's a distinct lack of that available, particularly within the UK. So it, it's interesting that you know you were on a program specifically designed for CLO and learning leadership. Is that something that's quite common where you are? Why did you go into that and what did you get out of it? It is not common by far. So there are several certifications in the industry. I think one of them is a train industry. Maybe it's, I think it's called CIPT, I should know this. Uh, they have a certification that is geared towards learning leaders, but University of Pennsylvania is the first doctoral program that's geared towards chief learning officers. It's a specialized program that started about 10 years ago by Elliot Maisie, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and also Nigel Payne, now Dr. Nigel Payne. So the two of them together started this program. It's a revolutionary program in its concept. Instead of it being a program designed to help people enter into learning leadership, they individuals already need to be at a certain level within an organization in order to either take that next step or just to, to gain the most benefit and understanding of the, the program itself. That is my opinion, having gone through the program. Uh, if I did not already have experience as a learning leader, it would have been a significant struggle in helping to prepare. At the end of the day, nothing beats practical experience. Theory can only take you so far. So I luckily had the practical experience. This gave me that theoretical experience on top of it and ultimately uh, a fantastic credential. The question that listeners would need to ask themselves before joining the program is why would they want to join a doctoral program? So there are master's programs that focus around this as well. Um, if you're not planning on teaching in higher education, or you're not planning on leveraging the network associated with the organization, a doctoral program is probably not the best thing for you. Now, for me, it, it was never in my purview. I, I didn't have a dream of, of being a, a doctor. But as I mentioned before, I'm a high school dropout. And so that weight, that significant weight has always stuck with me through my career so much that I've lied about it. And not only lied about it for so long, I forgot. <laughs> I told myself a different story and eventually I believed that story. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I had this aha moment that kind of came out in a conversation where it was like, oh, I'm not, I actually never graduated from high school. And part of that is what drove me to want to complete this program because I want to change the narrative that you have to have a formal structured education system like high school to college to be successful because you don't. In this day and age, education and learning should be happening constantly throughout your entire life and you can uh, accumulate credentials along the way. 
And the story that I was told and the story that, our, you know, our parents' generation was that you go to high school, then you go to college, then you get a job, then you stay with that job, you get a pension, and then you retire. That no longer exists. That model is completely blown up. And so for me, I wanted to do it because I wanted to add it to my story to say, hey, you actually don't need to follow this same model to be successful. I was able to do it without that. And I was even able to become a doctor from an Ivy League university without a high school diploma. Your journey is your own journey. It's like our fingerprints. And that, as I said, that, that model doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and so that, that's really why I did it was to just get the credential to say, hey, you didn't need all of these things to get to this stage. Mm, it's really interesting as well in terms of why someone would enter into a, a doctoral program. So I started a doctorate because I wanted to be a lecturer at the time. So I did BA, master's, and then into PhD. And then quickly, not actually not that quickly, but I did realize that actually I don't, I don't want to be a lecturer. And why am I doing this? Because ultimately lecturing is the only thing that comes out the other end of doing a doctorate in my, in my head anyway. So yeah, it's really interesting that you know, you're sharing that advice too. Do you still get that spark in people's eyes of actually teaching people? Do you see that kind of aha moment happen? And I suppose respond to that in those teaching moments that you do have? A hundred percent. So I, I love teaching. The part of it is I struggled with learning. So um, part of the, my backstory is I grew up all over the world. My father was in the military, so we moved every couple of years, uh, Germany, Korea, Japan, the United States. And so my education system was always in flux. And I was either ahead of the new school or I was behind. And it, I just really struggled with this concept of learning in the way that schools teach you. And I even had one teacher tell my parents that I had a learning disability. And so I needed to be held back. Meanwhile, next door, the next teacher is like, Keith's actually above genius. He should be skipping a grade. And so it was this tumultuous dichotomy of, um, am I smart? Am I stupid? And all of these labels associated. And that's eventually one of the catalysts for me dropping out was just, I, I just didn't fit in anywhere. And I didn't like the feelings that were being associated with it. And so I had to teach myself how to learn. And that is, I believe, my true gift is I can take a concept, I can teach it to myself, I can disseminate it, and then I'm able to translate it in a way back that others can understand in a more simple format because I had to go through that myself. And so I'm seeing those aha moments because when I'm building the content and then when I'm facilitating the program, I know how to put myself in their shoes because I had to learn it as well. The aha moments are, are what drive me in my career, regardless of you know, the job title. At the end of the day, I just love sharing knowledge in a way that people can understand. Physicist Michao Kaku said, knowledge is useless if you don't share it. And that's always stuck with me. And you know, that's why I love what you do. I love our industry. But practitioners like you, you're just focused on giving back. And I believe that that's what all of us need to do is give back in the industry. And that's really what training and learning is all about. Mm, and that idea of what learning is and what learning could be and, and how we learn effectively is, I think, in a lot of ways, and you hit the nail on the head here, counterintuitive when it comes to the education system. Again, I'm going to speak from a UK perspective, but that idea of well, your experience sounds quite similar in terms of being put in a classroom, being taught a specific subject in a certain way not necessarily being responsive to that and therefore not excelling or exceeding in or even 
just being okay at something because of the way you're being taught so I think personalization of experience is something that just never really happens or people don't have the time or resources understandably to be able to do that but actually it's quite necessary to discover how individuals can learn and learn effectively and there's no real awareness of that or there's certainly a lack of awareness of that um, that extends I think into the real world into into um, a corporate or or a job situation is that something that you know you've experience and you feel strongly about 100 percent, and not just in the job situation but also in the education system our education systems are completely outdated and archaic they were built to train order takers to work in factories that's where the system started from and that's the exact same system that we have today if you look back at let's say the 1800s and the way that people lived whether it's their home life or uh the the way that they worked everything has changed except for one thing you have the desk in a classroom with a chalkboard it's the exact same setup setup we're learning the same way that you did 100 200 years ago but think everything has changed now and the way that we need to be able to learn today is significantly different that translates not only from our school systems, but also into the workplace. And if you look at sciences like neuroscience, uh, learning pirate, Lauren Waldman, expert in this area, we're not applying those principles in organizations, and we're definitely not applying them in schools. And the irony is that there are universities that teach neuroscience and the art of learning, the science of learning, but they're not even applying their own models. It's like just you know talking about theory rather than practicality of it. Uh, so the answer to your question is yes, that is, a, that is a major challenge that we're not helping people learn the way that they need to be learning. Uh, and we ourselves, our industry is predominantly order takers. And that's kind of jumping ahead, why I was focused on writing this book, The Trusted Learning Advisor, the idea originally was i wanted to call it from order taker to strategic business partner because that's the evolution that our industry needs to evolve into um, like learners who were taught the order takers when l d originated in organizations we were also order takers it was the managers that were telling us what they needed the learner to do or the employee to do and so we would follow the instructions of the manager and do exactly what they would say without applying any type of um, learning science. And that model has still existed. And it's been the hindrance for us for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And we've got to evolve past the idea of saying, okay, business, what do you want? What can I do for you? Or the business just throw in an order over the wall to us and then we execute. You know, I want you to create a 30-minute web-based training. I want you to create a two-day sales training. They're putting these constraints on these orders, and we're executing them. To find out six, eight, nine months later, we didn't solve the problem. And they come back to us and say, yeah, you failed. Well, we did what you told us to do. It's time for us to evolve or else. It's a chicken and egg situation in that, in that instance, isn't it? That I don't think, again, it does seem to have been something that ever since I personally have entered the industry has been something that people talk quite a lot about so the shift from 
order takers to, I suppose, actually digging into the why to the problem that exists and the what actually needs to be done at the end of the day. I suppose quite naively when I first entered the industry thought, oh, it's great people are talking about this because, you know, as a learning designer, I felt like that was the, that was a real problem. And I identified that, that, you know, why does someone need a 45 minute e-learning course? You know, what are we, what are we actually going to achieve with this? And then quickly realised it was a, a lot of the time it was just people talking about it without actually necessarily really doing anything about it. Your book obviously sound, it sounds brilliant. So what are there any um, kind of is it a practical guide to I'm presuming you're applying what you know about how people learn to your book in order to affect change as someone reading your book comes out the other side thinking, OK, I know what I need to do now. Is that right? How have you approached that? So the Trusted Learning Advisor is a manifesto for the L&D industry, regardless of the role that you're in. I specifically wrote it with the idea that it was going to be for people who are thinking about moving over to the industry early in their career, mid-career, but also senior levels, particularly because when I joined, there was nothing that existed. And I was completely an order taker for the first 10 years. I didn't know any different. Now, in my case, I grew up as an order taker because my father was in the military. And so we took orders at home. Uh, I wasn't taught really how to think critically, how to ask questions, how to get to the root cause. You were just given the orders. And so when I switched into the field of L&D and that was happening from the business, and I looked around me and everybody else was doing it, I thought it was okay. Until I had built up enough experience where the orders would start to come in and I would realize, hey, that's actually not the best way to do that. We've done this before. There's a better way to do that. And then you, I would start to sort of talk back to the business or help to consult on a different approach. And that wasn't well received. And so it took a long time for me to even get the concept of there's a different way for us to operate. And then there's a whole strategic side behind getting the business to see us differently. And so to answer your question, the book is a guide. It's a manifesto. It is filled with my 25 years of experience of best practices on how to evolve from being order takers to being trusted learning advisors. Things like building, how to build trust with your business partners, how to communicate with them, how to build relationships, um, how to be a true L&D practitioner. There are a lot of people who don't understand that there is an art and a science to being an L&D practitioner. You need to understand the science of learning. You need to, uh, for example, build a toolkit. It is our responsibility to have the largest toolkit possible to understand everything that's out there from MOOCs, LXPs, LMSs, chatbots, AR, VR, ChatGPT. We may not be using all of it, but like a toolkit in your house, we need to have it, own it, and know which tool applies to which situation and what the outcome could be. Um, you know, for example, people will say, uh, you know, I love Kirkpatrick or I hate Kirkpatrick or I love Philips ROI model or I hate Philips ROI. It's not for us necessarily to decide um, what we like. It's for us to figure out how it works and when it's appropriate to use it so that we can proactively bring that to our business partner. And the word proactive is such an important distinction because order takers are reactive. Trusted learning advisors are proactive. So for me, my, my personal philosophy is if my business partner has to come to me, I've already failed. I should be going to them enough to where I understand the business. I understand the challenges. I'm looking two, three, six, 12 months ahead 
I'm capturing the data and I'm bringing that to them proactively to have those conversations. I'm setting up our quarterly QBR. I'm controlling the narrative and the conversation so that they don't have to come to me. So the book is filled with really, again, all the, the best practices and learnings that I've had over the years to evolve to the phase where I am in now. But I will say the caveat is we don't call ourselves trusted learning advisors. It's up to the business to determine whether or not we have achieved that status. And also that status is not guaranteed in perpetuity. That status is something we have to consistently be acting on and building and keeping once we do reach that level. Mm, your book sounds fabulous. I'm definitely going to read it when it comes out. But that's a really interesting point in terms of if someone reaches what they would term a successful position in a, in a leadership position, in my opinion, and it sounds similar to you, Keith, that you still have to continue learning. You still have to grow. You still have to keep keep up to date with everything that's going on within the industry and sometimes I feel like that's a neglected part of those senior leadership roles that there isn't enough time dedicated to the space to do that and to do it effectively and just because you've got there doesn't mean that you necessarily deserve to stay there if you're not doing that as well. One of my favorite examples of, of kind of building on what you were just saying is in 2003 I was training for a marathon and I eventually ran the marathon that doesn't make me a marathon runner today. You've got to keep your skills fresh. You've got to, in that case, I've got to keep stretching. I've got to keep running. I've got to keep practicing. I ran the marathon, but I'm not a marathon runner unless I'm continuously learning and, and, and building on that. And that's the same for an L&D practitioner. Our job is never finished. We need to be with or ahead of everything that's happening out in the industry. Like for example, chat GPT. I see on LinkedIn, a number of people in our community who are saying, yeah, I haven't really got on that bandwagon yet. What? Your business already has. Everyone is talking about it. Don't just be talking about it. But as soon as something new comes out, it is our responsibility to figure it out, to learn it, to play with it, to understand it, to pilot it, to prototype it, so that we proactively go to our business partner and tell them, here's how it can apply to you. Here's how it can work for you rather than sitting around waiting for someone else to say to us, hey, you know, how might I be able to use AR or VR? How might ChatGPT be helping me? Anytime these new tools come out, again, it's our responsibility to be three steps ahead of our business partners. The other thing I would say is I hear often in the industry, you know, we need to get a seat at the table. We need to figure out how to get a seat at the table. And I like to evolve that thought. Instead of trying to sit at somebody else's table, build your own table and invite them to sit with you. So rather than me trying to get into an executive room, what I like to do with my business partners is create a bit of a roadshow for them. Uh, and it'll, it's like a show and tell. We'll, well, we'll look for two or three business problems that they have, that we think that they have, or we've uncovered that they have, or that they might have. And we'll prototype, pilot, and we'll put together a 10 minute show and tell of the business problem, how we might solve it, how it could impact their business or positively improve their business. And then we invite them to come and demonstrate that. And I have found that that's one of the best ways to start to change the way that our business partners view us as order takers, because they start to see, you understand my business. You have got the research, you've got the data, you know my language, my vocabulary. That's a big challenge too, is um, I see a lot of L&D practitioners who like to use our language. Our language is applicable to us. 
if you go to your business partner and you say, oh, we're going to run this ROI report, it's Phillips model, or it's Kirkpatrick, and it's four levels, or five levels, that's going to go over their head. They don't care. They have their own business that they're worried about. So we have to learn how to change the lexicon, the vocabulary to focus on them rather than trying to have them learn our language because they don't understand our language. And the truth is, it's not their responsibility to understand our language. It's our responsibility as a trusted learning advisor to speak their language. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And and I think that's something that comes up quite regularly in, in how there are so many differences in terminology across businesses that we work with, particularly at Thrive, when people actually might be working towards the same thing, but actually they're using different language as well. So although what you're talking about there was like the difference in like language within certain groups within organizations, actually people might be having conversation about the same thing, but actually just using different language to talk about it as well. And it's kind of navigating those situations effectively too but also aligning that there's an opportunity i think for lnd to align terminology in some instances depending on how you're approaching things you've mentioned data a couple of times in passing and i'd just like to dig into that a little bit more because again we're really seeing a refocus on data and impact and particularly being talked about a lot in the industry what's your experience of whether that is actually playing out in the solutions that are being delivered it's obviously very important to you as an individual but in the wider sphere of, of your connections and your network, are you actually seeing people pushing for the right stuff and doing the right stuff in terms of gathering data and proving impact or business impact? This is a million dollar question. What I'll share with you is, uh, first of all, this was my doctoral research. So my research was studying chief financial officers to uncover how they view the L&D function in their organization. And one of the areas of focus was when we are reporting out to them, does that value align with how they subscribe to value? And the answer was largely no, it doesn't. Because the way we use ROI, the way that we're trying to get that dollar amount that we attribute to what we're doing is only applicable inside of our bubble. CFOs can't use that that same uh, equation because it doesn't translate for them. And so what they were saying, what I uncovered in my research was they appreciate the qualitative data more than the quantitative data because the quantitative data is so subjective. And that's the issue within the industry in general is that you know our data is largely subjective until we get to the qualitative. They want the stories of how we have impact because it's more tangible. There's more emotion there and it's more relatable. We are trying to give them Excel spreadsheets to show our value. And they look at that and say, yeah, that that doesn't translate to us. We can't A, use that data. And I don't know what this means. Largely, what I uncovered was CFOs were saying, build a relationship with us. So I interviewed a number of Fortune 500 CFOs. And off the top of my head, only two of them said they had a relationship with the L&D organization. And they followed it up to say, and I agree with this, it's not my responsibility to create that relationship. It's your responsibility, L&D. Build a relationship with me. Instead of just sending me a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers in it, why don't you ask me what would be valuable to me to help determine how you can increase your budget? Because that was ultimately what I wanted to get to was, you know, there's this misnomer. I believe it's a misnomer that L&D is always the first budget to get cut. The reason that we say that is because that's what we see. We're L&D, and so, oh my gosh, 
my budget got cut. I'm the first one to get cut. Well, according to CFOs, that's not the case. They cut all budgets across the board. <laughs> it's just that, again, we're at L&D, so we see that. They said, yeah, we cut marketing, we cut HR, we cut everything. And that was one of my questions too was, um, do you specifically target L&D budget? And the answer was no. We, a couple of things will happen. Either we do across the board, you know, an X percent budget cut, or we tell the business units to cut the budget. And so it depends on where L&D falls. L&D could be in HR, L&D could be in operations. And so there's not a standardized approach that we can say, this is exactly what happens. It's all unique depending on the organization. Does our budget get cut? Absolutely, but so do many other budgets. Now, how can we help uh, alleviate that? Or we can't really alleviate it, but how can we help fight that? And that's building the relationships with the CFOs and understanding what's valuable to them. And so what I took away was, one, I need to always build a relationship with the CFO because we don't look at them as stakeholders when we think about our stakeholders. And two, in building that relationship, asking them what's valuable, what kind of data can I share with you? What I uncovered was it was the qualitative data. They wanted the stories. So to go back to your original question, um, I do not focus on the traditional ROI. Uh, again, it's subjective. I'll give you a quick example. At GM, uh, we were thinking about trying to do this. and we can't tell if it's our training that increased the sales in a dealership or was it a natural disaster maybe there was a flood and that month more people had to go out and buy vehicles it has absolutely nothing to do with us but we don't drill down to that granular level however the story i can tell is who was able to get promoted who was able to sell more vehicles after they went through our training that type of data i can capture so for me, qualitative is more important than quantitative. Mm, I think there's a really valuable lesson in that as well, because I feel like there's a general move towards wanting to present quantitative data because it's what people visualize as data initially. So that kind of numbers and statistics and, and that kind of that is a lot of the time people think of that as data itself, like physical data, whereas the qualitative is sometimes a little bit harder to measure. It's more story based. It can be more subjective. There's a hesitancy to rely on that and people kind of edge back towards quantitative. So it's really interesting that you're saying that qualitative data is the way forward, essentially, because I agree there's probably a balance in, in some of that, that you know, data is useful depending on it, on its type, depending on the situation. But it's something that I think L&D teams are a little bit wary of, either talking about data itself or relying on qualitative, qualitative data because it doesn't have the same kind of air of authority as quantitative. I think it also depends on the situation. So I don't want to make a statement where I'm saying that, you know it's only qualitative. I think that it's dependent on the organization you're in and the situation in which you're you're trying to prove. At the end of the day, what is important that we all need to be striving to is demonstrating our value. Now, how we demonstrate the value is dependent on the organization and what's important. So Someone's organization may want only quantitative data. So of course, we need to give them that. Doesn't mean that we can't also provide the qualitative data, the stories that go along behind it. And I think that's the mistake that we often make is giving only what is being asked for, or maybe what is the norm, rather than taking it to that next level of how can how can I put a story behind this quantitative data that I'm giving you? So long story short, a big part of the Trusted Learning Advisor is focusing on our value. 
because at the end of the day, we have to demonstrate our value. And so there's multiple ways that you can do that with quantitative, with qualitative, with relationships in the organizations. And people often overlook that that relationship is also demonstrating value. One other thing that I talk about too, and there's lots of things in the book, but something I'll share here is um, what I call building your champion network. And that is proactively building relationships throughout the organization in a strategic manner. So one thing we did at GM was to change the mindset from being order takers to trusted learning advisors. We needed to have these strong relationships. And so I asked everybody in L&D, who are five people that are fans of us? We can find people who don't like us. They hate the LMS. You know, they, they don't like what we've done. Those are the loud voices. But what about the people that are supporters? And so we were able to identify about 200 people across the organization, out in the fields that were fans of us, that we could build relationships with. And what we did was each quarter, we set up a one hour virtual call. And the first part of that call was to share any programs we've recently launched. And one of the things we identified was we have a huge marketing issue. We're launching all these things and yet no one's taking them. Why? Well, because they get hundreds of emails. So why would they care about one more email? You know, or maybe it just went directly into their spam. So we needed to tell these champions, hey, here's what we've launched. Also, here's what's on our roadmap for the next three months. That was about the first 15, 20 minutes. The rest of the time was just an open discussion where we listened to them. What are you hearing on the ground? What are the problems that you have in operations? Uh, what are some challenges that you have in the business? So that we can get all that data to then start thinking about how can we change maybe our roadmap to solve some of those problems. And so we built these relationships. These weren't required meetings. It was just an open call. You could join if you wanted to. You didn't have to. But what we saw was then those 200 people went and had the discussions with their two or three friends. Now we've got six, 900 people that have heard about the programs we've launched. They've heard that there's this open forum where they can share feedback directly with us and that they're going to be heard. And that was really valuable for starting to demonstrate our value for building relationships and embedding ourselves in the business. Because at the end of the day, what we did, we took all of that data, we then took it back to our stakeholders and our business partners. Because our business partners are telling us, hey, we need this, this, and this to be a focus. And we would say, actually, we've been working with the frontline employees and what you're saying is correct, but there are a couple of other things that may be even more important that you should be aware of. And we could share that data with them. That's when the light bulb started to go off for them in terms of, oh my gosh, you actually are in the business, you know my business, and you're giving me important feedback. Hmm. Really valuable insights, Steve. Thank you. And just to wrap up, what are some of the opportunities or alternatively challenges that you're seeing in the industry at the moment more broadly? It's still the order taker versus trusted learning advisor or strategic business partner. We've got to evolve from waiting for the order or just executing on the order. And there's one caveat, there's taking the order versus order taker. And the difference is as a trusted learning advisor, sometimes to build the relationship and stay in the room, we do have to take the order. Doesn't mean we have to execute on that order in that exact manner versus an order taker. They get the order and they execute it as is. They don't do any of the consultative feedback. They don't do any needs analysis, they don't get into the root cause, they don't do any piloting, prototyping. And so there are many situations where I do need to take the order to get into the room, to build the relationship so that then I can help evolve to being a trusted learning advisor. So the, the answer to your question is evolve. At this point, 
in the next five years, the, I, I believe this is the most critical time for L&D because when you've got something like ChatGPT and your business partners truly understand how to use it, why would they need to come to us to build an L&D plan? They can just go into ChatGPT and say, hey, create an L&D plan for this uh, sales challenge. Uh, create the content for me. There's AI programs that will then take the content from ChatGPT, put it into e-learning or put it into an AR or VR model. So if we don't quickly demonstrate our value, particularly by using these new tools, they're going to start doing it themselves. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Keith, so much for sharing your insights. I think we could have carried on talking for, for hours, <laughs> but um, really appreciate it. And thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. This podcast is powered by Thrive. We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.